Hey everyone, it is so good to see you for this edition of Escaping Rock Bottom. I'm your host, Brandon Lee. I've got a special guest here with me today, Dr. Lynn Friedman-Gell. She has an incredible story, but she's also going to be able to answer a lot of my questions about what do we do when we decide to get help. She's an expert, um, but she's got a fantastic story, and I'm so excited uh, that she's been willing to share it with us. Um, so, doctor, thank you so much for being here. Okay, doc- Dr. Gell. Yeah, you can call me Lynn, though. I'll just call yeah, you Lynn. Yeah, Lynn is fine. Thank you. I love that. Thanks for being willing to share your story um, with all of us. I think that this is going to be so powerful for a lot of people because you do have the doctor background, and you are a professional in recovery. I am a professional in recovery, yeah. You were a professional addict and now a professional in recovery. And I was good. I'd like to say I'm great at both. I love it. (laughs) I was very good at both, too. So we're good there. Yeah. Um, Take me back, um, Lynn, to your childhood and really where you grew up and where it all began for you. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up here in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley in Van Nuys. And what what, what looked like on the surface, a very Aussie and Harriet family, Weekends together as a family. Dad came home for dinner every night. Camping trips. Lots of family time. Um, Girl Scout from the age of five until I was 18. So everything on the outside looked perfect. Perfect. And, um, yeah, and and in fact, when I got into recovery, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I, I did wonder, how did that happen? How did my addiction get so huge? coming from what, what appeared to be a very loving family. and um, I relate to yeah. that because that's one question that I get asked all the time. Growing up in Orange County, California, Corona Del Mar, Laguna Beach area, it's a beautiful area of the country, right? It's very affluent. Uh, people there do typically have a lot of money, send their kid to private schools, play a lot of sports and do those things. And I tell people, listen, alcoholism, drug addiction, it wasn't around me. It wasn't around me, but I still found it. So take me back to when your first real traumas began for you. Yeah, and I have to say that I, it took me years of being in recovery to figure that out. Mm, me too. Uh, because I really thought um, I did have addiction around me. My father drank functioning alcoholic, but he and all his friends, they drank every weekend. That's how you have a good time. You drink. Um, I can picture myself at eight years old bringing him his scotch and water at the door. I knew just the right color it should be, and I would sip it. So um, there was- What was was that like for you when you took that first sip at that age? You know, I think at first it tasted icky, and then it tasted nice. Yeah. You know, and um, growing up Jewish, we drank wine at the holidays, and I can remember us getting drunk, you know, being like eight or nine years old, getting drunk on uh, New Year's Eve, and everybody laughing, nobody thinking anything of it. And so it was around. It was around. But, it, but I, so I used to think that I, I became an, alcohol, uh, an addict because my father drank. He was a bit of a beatnik. He told us stories about uh, living across the street from Santa Monica Beach and running his phone cord across PCH so he could have parties and pay the rent. And this wildness. And I wanted to be like him, spinning my car out on dirt Mulholland. Like I was like, he's my role model. Right. So I used to just think, okay, well, that's why I became an addict, because that's what was modeled for me. Mm. And it was a habit and I liked it. 
and I didn't go any deeper with it for a really long time. I mean, that was enough for me to get clean and sober and do the steps and get really active in recovery. But through my developmental trauma work, in fact, as I trained as a therapist, I'm jumping ahead, Mm -hmm. but my my business partner, Dr. Joanne Barron, used to say, there must be something more. There must be something more. And I was like, no, no. Okay, I came to understand that my mom had a severe anxiety disorder. And and I'm a mom. I have a 14-year-old son. And I'm with him. I engage with him. I check in with him. And I, I came to wonder, where, where was my mom? Like, yeah, we had dinner together. But then where was she after that? And where was she on the weekends? Like, she was always in her bedroom. Hmm. She just was um, disconnected from us. And if I was anxious about something and I told it to her, she made me even more anxious because it made her anxious. So what I came to understand is that I couldn't bring my feelings to her. Mm. And so when I was anxious, I just had to uh, suppress it and push it down. And as soon as I could find weed, right, because in the teenage years, what's more troubling, all the emotional stuff, the relationships. So when my heart would be broken or I or somebody was mean to me or I didn't feel like I fit in, I didn't bring that to my mom. I didn't bring it to my dad. I started smoking weed at 13 years old. And I can remember smoking in front of school, like before student council, in the bushes, in the rain, getting stoned in the eighth grade. And it really just took off from there. God, that is it. It's so interesting, and I always tell people this too. When you, whenever you have a chance in recovery, and you have a chance to sit down with another addict or an alcoholic, you start to realize how much of our stories actually mirror each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, even going back to around the same ages, because I remember you just said that you know I was thirteen, fourteen in middle school, going into high school, and we used to go and we used to smoke weed out in the outer fields of the you know, the playground and the, and the baseball fields. And we used to go do those things. So, you know, weed was also one of the first was one of the first drugs that I kind of dipped into. But I personally didn't like the way weed made me mm. feel because it made me want to go to sleep. And so it's just the that's the way that drug uh, impacts me and affects me is that it just makes me want to go to bed. So I didn't stick around with weed too much. But um, continue on yeah. um, when sure. what was the next drug that you ended up trying? You know, I think well, other than alcohol, because alcohol right. accompanied everything my entire Me too. life. Yeah, and so though I got clean and sober in Narcotics Anonymous, alcohol was always part of my using. Totally, I believe the next things was Quaaludes. Mm. I'm that much older than you. Yeah, <laughs> so Quaaludes were still around, and I believe in it, late eighth grade we were. Uh, doing quaaludes and that after some party I passed out I believe my parents even found the quaaludes and bought the it's not mine I'm holding it for someone else story I still use that excuse and my parents did buy it yeah (laughs) they just want to believe that nothing bad is happening you know, uh, and I and I stayed with that simple stuff in through ninth grade, tenth grade. Um, for me, high school started in tenth grade, eleventh grade. It wasn't until a senior that I found cocaine, mushrooms. Uh, graduation, we we got some acid that we were going to do at grad night, but instead we took it. So the night before graduation, I I was on the beach. I mean, high, really high, came home at five in the morning and my parents were furious. But, you know, no real consequences. They just really normalized it as no big deal and just normal behavior. And 
it was not normal behavior. Not normal behavior. But, you know, I had straight A's. I was a Girl Scout. And they just had no idea. It's so interesting that you say that because my parents did the same thing. I was the youngest of three kids. Um, I was also uh, almost a straight-A student. I did really well in sports. So when I did mess up or I did get into trouble at school or, you know, with booze, bringing booze to school was my thing. Mm. And I got caught and Mm. I got suspended. And the punishment was I had to stay home from school for a week. Not punishment. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) fine by me. But, you know, my parents had trouble figuring out a way to discipline me because I heard their discussions being like, he does really well in school. He's got great grades. He does really well in sports like how do we discipline that and the problem is is that not disciplining me ended up just creating a beast inside of me that I could work hard and play hard with no repercussions right and you know I don't and it's never about blaming our parents in Mm. my experience it's just they the cluelessness right like they just didn't get a sense of wow there's something going on underneath the surface why is my kid using so much right. nor did they know how much i was using i mean they didn't know that as i drove to school high school that i would get stoned in the morning right. i'd get stoned at lunch i'd get stoned in the afternoon you know they didn't know how much i was using uh nobody asked either nobody asked i'm right there with you I, even into my adulthood, I, I wish they would ask, you yeah. know, even when I got sobering and yeah. went into recovery. That is one thing I just vocalized to my parents recently. I, I, when I came clean to you and told you that I was in recovery and that I had, was near death and, mm-hmm. you know, you never thought to pick up the phone to even ask me how I was doing mm-hmm. in recovery. But I'm like, wow, that actually just mirrors the way I was raised, Mm -hmm. you know, like never wanting to really know the truth, just wanting to believe what we see at surface level is what's really happening. Right. Really speaking to um, parent denial because it's so upsetting. They get anxious, they get upset, they get worried, and they don't want to feel those feelings either. So it's just this cycle, this intergenerational cycle. So you ended up getting into some pretty hardcore drugs. Yeah, I picked my college based on where did they grow good weed, right? It was going to be UC Santa Cruz or Humboldt State. So in UC Santa Cruz, I was very involved. I have student council. I was the party chairman. I planned this knockout three-day nonstop party. Cherry Jello slip and slide. I mean, not to glamorize the using. But, you know, some of it I look back and like, it was fun. It was And I didn't quit using because I didn't like it anymore. I quit using because it was destroying my life. So it's complicated in that regard. Mm. Um, But um, I got into doing LSD and cocaine, and that was in um, in, in my college years. I dropped out after two years of college and came back to Los Angeles and then uh, kind of became a little bit more moderate again, so I was more a weekend warrior. And that went on for a number of years, and I might have maintained that if I'd have just stayed with um, marijuana, alcohol, and the occasional uh, trip with with acid or something. Mm. But I, uh, beyond the cocaine, I found meth. 
And then with math, it opened up this whole other very strange, bizarre life experience. And um, I actually ran away from college and lived homeless on the streets of San Francisco and worked at the Hate Street Soup Kitchen and put myself in these very precarious situations. But it all seemed like an adventure until it wasn't. Until I was alone on a bus going nowhere. And actually, I, I was sick and didn't know it. But I developed hepatitis in those years and mm. didn't know it till I came home. It's part of why I came home was because I was so fatigued. I, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and in those days, they didn't know about hepatitis C. So that kind of went on undiagnosed. Um, but in the very end, fast forward, because I used until I was 28 years old. At the very end, I, I was... I used until I was 28 years old, too. That's crazy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So at the very end, I was shooting meth, and I thought I was really slick because I kept my own needle because I didn't want to get hepatitis you know, C, and you want to I, transmit HIV or any wanna, other diseases. That's that right. So I thought I was being, brings. you know, smart about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's illegal to have that kind of paraphernalia, mm-hmm. and I was hanging out with, uh, you know, a pretty sketchy crowd. Uh, so when when I was with people in a stolen car, I really didn't know it was stolen, but I ended up getting arrested. And then the this lawyer I had got me sentenced to a program that at the time was only a men's program. I, I don't know how I got sentenced to it, but I, I spent a week there. And then I, I left to get high again. Ultimately, I was going to get in trouble because I'd violated the probation. And, mm. you know, I, I did have a strong sense of right and wrong. And I didn't want to change my name or leave the state. Those seemed to be the options in front of me. Leave the country. That's what the people I was hanging out with were telling me. And and they were getting more and more, not even just speed anymore, but now it was heroin. And I was being introduced to that. And um, anyways, ultimately, I ended up being sick again. And that's when I just couldn't function. And um, I was living in my van. I'd left my apartment in West L.A., the van got towed away, and I ended up calling my parents, and I asked them to take me into treatment, and I went to cry help. Not because I wanted to get clean, but because I didn't want to get arrested. So, God. Okay, so you end up going into recovery, right? Right. And what was that like? You know, I'm one of those. When you really started to put some time together, because yeah. I know you were kind of in and out. At that very beginning, well, I did. Stage, I did one week. You did one week. One and, week, and then yeah. I was out again. And it wasn't. I mean, although I didn't use for the week, I wasn't in recovery. Okay. This was really my very first time. And April twenty second, Earth Day, came to find that out. Mm. So I, I kind of like that. In fact, I'll be twenty seven years clean. Wow! Congratulations. This April twenty second. So we're coming right on that. That's a miracle. Yeah, that's yeah. a miracle. When you started to go through recovery and you started to work on the twelve steps and you really started to do kind of an in depth inventory about your own life right, that we all do in recovery. It's when I really started to realize that, you know, being uh, being molested as a young child by my piano teacher and my soccer coach, being, you know, physically and verbally abused by my mom, that those are things, when that happened to me as a child, I went into survivor mode. And so I buried them so down deep in my soul. Right in the back of my brain that I wouldn't remember it because I just had to survive. As a young child, you can't fight back, right? So what I realize is through the 12 steps of recovery is that I realized that a lot of those untreated traumas surfaced. And as much as I told people that I didn't think the molestation that happened to me as a mm-hmm. child had any impact on me as an adult, 
couldn't be further from the truth. And that I truly believe the reason why I sought out those drugs and sought out the escapism, like you, I had a great time at the beginning. It was fun because that adverse reality was fun because my reality wasn't always so fun. Yeah. But eventually it came crashing down. But I, I ask you that because when you were doing your inventory, what did you mm -hmm. find? Right. And and even I should uh, also add that in my using, it wasn't all fun. I mean, I was raped in my using mm -hmm. and, and violence happened. And there was a lot of terrible things that went on in the using as I got more and more into it. Absolutely. So it really was, uh, you know, very painful. Mm -hmm. um, so just to clarify that, because it wasn't all, you know, it was Happy rock and roll times. and fun, you great know, times yes, out, yes. The, out at the raves. But That's I always right. tell people it was fun until it wasn't. It was fun until it wasn't, yeah. So as I started, so first of all, when I came into recovery, I fell in love. Oh. I was just, um, I loved the meetings. Mm. I loved the spirituality. I loved the fellowship. I loved the hugs and the connection. And that everybody was on this path of, of finding their higher selves. So I really loved that. At the same time, I almost got kicked out of my program at like 45 days, and I was planning to go to the connection and get high. So um, it's a little complicated there. Mm -hmm. But um, by 90 days, I knew I wanted this. Um, so through my um, inventory and, and all my step work, um, I, I didn't have that that full spiritual awakening until I got more into the therapy. Okay. Um, but I was, became very involved in uh, the 12 steps and being of service. My treatment program was nine months long. That was back in the days when programs were at one year and I actually graduated early. So I was in a very protected environment for those first nine months. Uh, once I got a job, I was uh, living in the sober living of that treatment center. So it was very protected. Um, so I did have that going on, but, um, well, I'm curious, yeah, I want to almost get to the point because oh, I, I want to get to the point of where you're at now, because I find it just so fascinating about what you do now. And I'm actually going to have you explain, cause it's a long title and you're an expert in such a large field of recovery right. that. Tell us, this is going to be so shocking for a lot of people that w what they've heard from you so far and right. where you were at in your life right. to a point where you told me that somebody told your mom to forget you. Right. That first treatment program, the director there, or the owner told my parent, mom and dad that I should, they should just forget about me. I would never amount to anything. Tell me what you do now. And so I, um, when I left that treatment program, I went into chemical dependency school, which is actually very protective. And a lot of people in early recovery do that. One of my professors there, she says, Lynn, you should go on and you should study more. And I also realized that as a chemical dependency counselor, I wasn't going to be able to help people with their underlying issues. And I really wanted to help people. So from there, I did the chemical dependency. I finished my BA, and then I went right into a master's PhD program, and I became a clinical psychologist. And it was a long process. That was um, two years of chemical dependency school, two years of my BA, and then five years of my master's PhD with two extra years to finish the dissertation. So it was a very long process. 
ultimately I got my doctorate. So I'm Dr. Lynn Friedman Gell. And I said, see, I'll show that woman who said I wouldn't amount to anything. Mm-hmm. And um, my specialty started out in the beginning, obviously, as addiction. And I started working with addicts um, who were in very early recovery or addicts who were not even in recovery and trying to help move them into recovery. But very soon I came to understand that I needed to get to the roots underneath, the developmental trauma. And there was, there's people uh, who don't even know that they have trauma, like you and I didn't even recognize it at first. But sometimes the trauma can be really benign, like just neglectful parents, mm. parents who work too much. Uh, a very depressed mom, uh, a death in the family, all the way to the sexual abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse. So we don't even always recognize that we've been traumatized. It could be that someone was bullied in school. It could be bad sibling relationships. Uh, And so we don't always even recognize the developmental trauma. But I began to study developmental trauma. And I I studied um, for the last 10 years developmental trauma and um ultimately one year ago almost today i opened a program with my business colleague called trauma and beyond we're a psychological center we started with just an outpatient which is one time weekly and um three months ago we launched our intensive outpatient and partial day treatment programs and so Uh, What this is is actually the fruition of our dream. My business partner has actually been clean and sober for, I think, 43 years. So she's just an icon in the community, Dr. Joanne Barron. And really my work wife, we get along. We're just, we see the world in the same way. And we've created this program where we, we, um, we see eye to eye. And when we don't, whoever... It's about, well, why do you see it that way? Why do I see it this way? It's all about negotiation and communication and repair and all the things that we didn't have in our childhoods. That is so fascinating because now she's our expert guest Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we can kind of fire away questions about addictions. You know, what do you say to, I guess, the most emails and the comments that I get typically right now are from parents concerned about their child that their child might be using or that they believe that their child is using but they have no idea how to confront their child on honestly doctor it feel like so many parents these days are afraid to offend their own child they're afraid of the tantrum that is about to hit them if they confront them what do you say to parents who feel helpless that they don't have the power to help their child who might have a drug issue. Yeah, complicated. And, um, you know, I found that a lot. I was actually the clinical director of an adolescent treatment program called Insight here in Sherman Oaks, which my business partner co-owned with her husband. And so I worked a lot with families. Now, those families had recognized the issue and come into treatment. Um I have a 14-year-old son myself, and it's like, oh, goodness, he's right at that age, right? Right. Now, I have worked with my son his whole life to have open communication. I had him in schools that focused on social-emotional learning, something that didn't even exist in the vocabulary of our families, right? Right. Um, But for parents who are afraid, they can get some coaching, They can talk to some experts about how to talk to their children, but we cannot live on fear, and we can't base our decisions on fear. 
And so it's so, it's life, I mean, it's life and death. Especially with the drugs that are in the culture right now, younger and younger and younger. I mean, kids in middle school, high school doing Xanax and heroin, Oxycontin. I mean, drugs that might not have existed in our day. So we can't be uh, afraid of the reaction. Now, if there is a child who is going to have a huge reaction, then maybe they want to consider bringing their you know, son or daughter into a therapist's office to have that kind of discussion. You know, to be able to say, hey, we know something's going on here. We don't know how to talk to you about it. So we have this doctor here with us to help us talk about this as a family. Well, take me now to just even recreational drug use, um, because there, especially even in the gay community, in the gay community, there is this like belief that you can go and you can, you know, do ecstasy on these huge circuit party weekends or you could be a social user of drugs and things like that. And what's your before I give my opinion on it, I want to go to the experts of what is your take on recreational drug use? Um, okay, before I answer that question, I also want to go back that they don't have to a parent doesn't have to meet with a, a doctor, a therapist. Uh, there's licensed MFTs, licensed clinical social workers. There's coaches. There's somebody there's to help guide that conversation. There's a lot of people in you. recovery these days that can, that can help support you as a parent to lean on. And so seek out the help. Oh, yeah. The, the, every parent that comes to me, the first thing I tell them to do, I find out what city they're in. I yeah. go online. I find them two Al-Anon meetings, and that's right. their homework. The moment they reach out to me, right. here's your homework assignment. you got two Al-Anon meetings to go through this week. You need to introduce yourself to two other parents at these Al-Anon meetings. After you've completed those two Al-Anon meetings, then call me back. Oh, that's You great. have to show me that you're willing to do the right. work as a parent and not just come to me hoping that I'm going to have the cure-all answer for your fix. That you're going to fix the family. I cannot do it. you got to right. fix it yourself. Um, All right. So, so recreational to, drug use. Because there's a... a uh, that's a loaded question. I know. It's a totally loaded you know, question. And now that people... marijuana... You know, pot's legal. <laughs> Pot is legal. I know. I mean, it's shocking, right? You can apparently just go to the store and buy it. You can. Uh, so recreational use is complicated um one of the complications is that the drugs can be so strong that even one-time use can actually cause psychosis Mm -hmm. but you know i i don't know if a young person is going to believe that because young people are invincible so if you try to tell a young you know a 16 year old or a 20 year old that one time using that drug can make your mind go psychotic you're not going to really get anywhere with them they're 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 going to just walk away and do what they're going to do so there's times when i believe that 100 percent sobriety is absolutely required there's other times when i work with a harm reduction model so let's say the idea of balance right so i i work a lot i have my private practice i have my uh, business my intensive outpatient uh, but i also have a 14 year old son and a husband and a father And I have to find a balance. I have to find a balance between my work and my play and my relaxation and taking care of myself and, number one, sleeping my eight hours a day because there's nothing more important than that. I sleep eight hours every night. (laughs) Um, So can young people get that? Maybe. So if somebody tells me, and, oh, gosh, I could get burned for this, but I I use, um, well, you know, the 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 party drugs versus the you know the ecstasy you know if somebody says i take ecstasy uh once a year at the um like new year's eve 
Right, New Year's Eve or the electric, whatever the big right. electric EDM. EDM. Thank yes. you. <laughs> well, I'll say you know you got to be careful because you don't really know what you're getting, and it could be really bad, and you could you could lose your mind. But um, somebody using you know once a year. We're not going to put them in treatment. Like, that's balanced, right. you know. But I, I usually say to somebody, do you know how to have fun on your own? Right? Can you have a good time without drugs? I want to see you have fun with yourself and with your friends with no drugs involved. If somebody were to ask me that question, the answer would have been no. Yeah. If I were being truthful. Yeah. I said the same thing about the girl next door in my dorm room. How does she have any fun in her life? She doesn't get high. What is wrong with her? So I agree. Um, But also there wasn't a lot of communication around it. I wasn't really talking openly. I've introduced the topic of drugs. Well, my son's school actually introduced the topic in the fourth grade. And so we've had an open discussion. Not that I've shared my my history to any huge degree. I mean, I would answer questions if asked, but I, I didn't volunteer it like you do when you're taking, you know, when you're sharing at a meeting in that right. way, your experience, strength, and hope. But um, I would really say to someone, you know, who you're talking about like in the gay community or in any community, right. do you need this drug to have fun? Do you need this drug to have sex? Do you need this drug to go dancing? If you need it, then let's ask a question. Why would you need it? Why do you need it? Is there anything else going on? What's underneath that? Mm. Right? Because need is a tricky word. You know, I need my sleep, but do I need something to get me through it? Mm. Do I need something to have fun? Because we should know how to have fun. It's a learned behavior as well. It is absolutely a learned behavior. And it becomes habitual. And so when I'm working or advising or consulting, it's like, okay, let's see you have fun. And then, okay, one day you want, it's like the icing on the cake. You know, uh, unless you have an eating disorder, you're probably not eating a chocolate cake every day. You have a chocolate cake on your birthday or someone else's birthday. But it's in balance, right? And when drug use becomes out of balance, when anything becomes out of balance. Yeah, sex. Sex. My goodness. I And, and we, I, it's. This is the crazy thing when you're just talking, you realize, oh, my goodness, 30 minutes has already like come and gone and flown by. Um, what is because we're going to have to close. Um, but what is a good way that people can reach out to you or contact you if they have any other questions? Because I know a lot of parents are going to. Ask yeah. me for information. Wonderful. Thank you. I am happy to, to respond. Um, I do a lot of consultation as well, and I'm happy to share the information that I've come to know and love. So two ways to reach me. Um, I have two different email addresses. One is lingell, L-Y-N-N-E-G-E-L-L-P-H-D, at gmail.com. Uh, another would be Dr. Lynn at traumaandbeyondcenter.com. And just to let everybody know who is listening or who is watching, I am going to absolutely put all this information mm-hmm. on the podcast as a resource for any parents who do have questions about maybe their own children or heck, maybe even about their own marriage or their own partner or even themselves. And they want some of those questions asked. Um, I'm going to have you back for another mm-hmm. for another podcast down the road because I really want to talk to you about sex addiction. Mm. Because I think that that's one thing that does, yeah, not, does get, not get spoken about enough. Sex does not get spoken that's about what I enough. Mean. Even in meetings, even right. in AA meetings, it's that's like, right. 
Well, we're going to talk addiction. about sex today. Can be. It sure. is a huge addiction. Right. And I want to talk about that and um, and some other and some other stuff about drugs in sobriety. Yeah, it's complicated, complicated for sure. Complicated yes. some stuff is some really complicated stuff because yeah. I also want to talk about the effects of CBD and CBD oils now being all introduced and right. some treatment centers I hear now are starting to use CBDs as a way to get people off of the hardcore drugs and Yep, very Ooh. controversial. So, very some controversial uh, stuff but important, in, but, but really important. important and, 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 we talked about. I'm all about. Let's just talk about some of the controversial stuff. Let's get yeah. it out there in the open, and let's just all have a conversation about yeah. it, so we don't judge other people and what might work for them. Right. So, um, right. Oh, so good to Dr. meet Dell, you and speak to you. Pleasure to meet you and have you yeah, on the podcast. Thank you. This is not the first. This is right. not going to be the first and only. And I just want to add that I still do go to meetings. I'm still active in my recovery, and that I I, I integrate. Uh, therapy and recovery, um, and I think that's really important. I do too. I do yeah. too. I've I've now seen the the, the beautiful benefits of therapy. Yeah. Um, ther- my therapist got me to places that AA could not get me. Right. You know, your sponsor is only your sponsor, and right. meetings working are only the steps. Meetings, you know, that's working right. steps, but you know, therapy yeah. really helped me get yeah. to that next threshold to really understand. So I really admire understand. what you're doing, and thank really you. good to meet you. Thank you for asking me to be here today, thank you, and thank you for sharing some yeah. of your stories. So again, you can watch this on YouTube, Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, and of course, my website, EscapingRockBottom.com. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you back here Bye. next Wednesday.